Debating Metalheads. It's me, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal. And once again, I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Kay. It's that time for another episode of Debating Metal. And this week, we are trying something new. This week, we are calling the episode Headlines. And as the title suggests, we'll be debating some of today's current hard rock and heavy metal news headlines. We're going to pick some news articles that we think are ripe for a good debate and discuss the merits of each story. And as always, we're going to have some more rusty metal and a new freshly forged for you. And be sure to stick around until the end because we're going to pick our favorite drummers for this week's Big Four. Rusty Metal is my pick of a classic metal album that you may or may not know but should give another listen to. And Chris offers his Freshly Forged pick, which is a new release he thinks you might get into. So if you like what you hear today and want to check out some of our older episodes, be sure to subscribe to our show. We're on all the major platforms and even some not so major. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and pretty soon YouTube. So Kenneth, what is your Rusty Metal pick this week? All right, this week um, we're keeping it old still. Uh, I I still haven't gotten used to being able to bring something closer to the end of the uh, 90s, really. Uh, you know, the mid-90s, I still, I'm still not there yet. I mean, I did it with Fight a few weeks back, but still looking for those older albums. So this week, I went back to 1985 again, and Rusty Metal this week is Lizzie Borden, Love You to Pieces. And this is their debut full-length album. The album was released on Metal Blade Records. It was produced by Lizzie Borden, and it was recorded at Music Grinder Studios, Sunswept Studios, and Mad Dog Studios, all in Los Angeles, California. This album contains some really cool songs. Um, some of the songs that are on the album are Counsel for the Cauldron, Save Me, Flesh Eater, Rod of Iron, and their anthem, American Metal. The one thing I can say about this album that I really, really, really enjoy is that it's got hooks galore. I mean, the chorus has got hooks. The verses have hooks. It's, it's just one of these things where... Lizzie himself, the, the the actual singer, he really knows how to write a good hook. Um, the the flip side to that all, and part of the reason why they never really really made it big, is that they were trying to be like a combination of Motley Crue, Bad Boys, and Wasp, Shock Rockers, and so they did a lot more of the shock rock, um, but. In reality, they had a really big cult following in the in the West Coast, but it as a nat they just never were able to appeal to a national audience. I think some of that may have had to do with the fact that they were on a small label, so they didn't really get a lot of like say a good slot on an opening you know a, a, as an opening act for a major band because they were on a on a independent label, you know. So usually, you know, you get a big band that's on say Electra Records. Electra's going to try and promote one of their younger bands or newer bands or even, you know, uh, another record company, is, you know, is going to pay to put them in their spot. You know, so, but these independent labels, they just usually have independent concerts and they just, that's how the groundswell happens to, to, for them to become major label acts. But that never really took place or, or never really happened for Lizzie Borden. One of the reasons that may or may not have happened, besides everything I just mentioned, is that they had a revolving door of guitar players in that band. I don't think any album had the same pair of guitar players from one to the next. And that, you know, that kind of 
you know, turnover tends to mess with the chemistry of a band and, you know, it, it kind of slows you down as, as a band, you know, yeah, you make albums, but somewhere along the way, the, 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 the cohesiveness is not there. So, you know, with Lizzie Borden, I think that was a big problem for them. And as good as this album is, because I really, really love this album. I mean, American Metal was the anthem in 1985. So that, that was a killer, killer song. You know, I'm 16 years old and I check out this song and I'm like, yes, this is, you know, this is all, this is what it's all about. American Metal, you know? So it was, it was one of those types of songs where you just really dug into because it was the, the chorus, the anthemic theme of it. It was just all so good. They reached their popularity a couple years later when they released their album Visualize and it had a single called Me Against the World. That is one of the hookiest songs I got. I mean, it gets stuck in your head and you just don't forget it. So they, it's, it's hard to describe why they didn't make it big, but at the same time, you kind of understand when you see them. So I say, get this album. It's still available on CD and vinyl. And of course you can hear it on all the streaming platforms. It's a really cool album. Give it a shot. I think you'll enjoy it. Very cool. All right. For this week's freshly forged, um, I picked somebody that I never thought I would, especially um, since I haven't. I've kind of followed their career, never been really that interested. Um, but this week, I'm picking D. Snyder with his new release, "Leave a Scar." Um, I've listened to the first two singles, and "A Time to Choose" kind of blew me away. I, I, um. I was surprised. He actually got George Corpse Grinder Fisher uh, from Cannibal Corpse to do some background vocals, and it sounds awesome. And I think part of the reason why I'm enjoying this this album and uh, for the love of metal so much um, is because Dee's voice has changed over the years. It's gotten lower. It's gotten a little bit more gravelly. And the change in style of music is is the right direction to go. It, it feels right. It's, it's kind of uh, like he, he still has that ability to hit the clean vocals, but at the same time, there is, there's a little bit more to his voice with age than I, than I always ever really liked when he was, you know, doing the twisted sister thing. Um, it's, it's a darker album. It's, uh, it's something a little bit out of the, the norm. If, if you've only ever heard, twisted sister so i i definitely say check this out this is this is really cool um i got a rock again is the second single and i i really liked it you know it's it's one of those um you know kind of typical uh i you know i I love to rock i want to rock you know um rock and roll all night kind of vibes to it but at the same time it is a little bit darker tone that that's kind of fun so i i definitely say check this out i was very surprised that this was this was my pick but uh i i listened to both tracks multiple times um and didn't really get tired of it i thought that was pretty good you surprised me earlier today when you told me that that you liked this uh single and i'm like that's cool i guess you know it kind of threw me off but um you know the one thing i know about d and i I haven't listened to these songs i listened to uh one or two songs off for for the love of metal he definitely 
more metal than Twisted Sister ever was. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so that that's one thing that's a little bit different. Um, and it's funny because I watched a video recently of him um, doing his show, and he brought out Mark the Animal Mendoza, and you know, he said that the, one of the reasons why he didn't want to continue doing live shows with Twisted Sister is because he had set such a high bar in terms of the energy that the band gave that he did not want to let down the fans. And one of the things I noticed is that he was still doing the same things on uh, with his solo band that he did with Twisted Sister, which mm-hmm. was jumping up and down uh, to the rhythm of the song um, and, and even sometimes not even to the rhythm of the song. And on, I mean, when I say jumping up and down, he's grabbing the microphone, which is on the stand, and moving it with his jump so that he can continue to keep his voice near the microphone. It's a weird habit that he has because he jumps straight up and down and he's both feet, you know, it's it's not like a, a hop or a bump, you know, anything like that, but he just literally jumps up and down. Um and so that was something I thought that he was going to stop doing. And that was probably the reason why he wanted to stop doing Twisted. But I think it's just him. And as much as he still can perform. I mean, the guy's, you know, late 60s already. And he can still bring it. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, unique thing that he does that I think he, f- I don't want to say falsely thought about. But I think he didn't realize that that was just going to be him when he played live, regardless of whether it was with Twisted or not. So it's real interesting. I got to check out the album. Uh, you did tell me it was pretty good, so I got to check it out and listen to it on the way to work tomorrow, which is what I do every day. You give me a cool. Every time you <laughs> give me a, a cool thing to listen to, I listen to it the next morning. So we're going to do that again. As all of you should be doing. That's right. Everybody. Tomorrow <laughs> morning, listen to it on your way to work or working out or whatever you want to do. All right. Um, headlines. We got some headlines that we want to read and kind of discuss and debate and, you know, maybe mock, maybe get serious. Who knows what the debate's going to be like, but we're going to pick some headlines and we're going to talk about them and see how we feel about them. So I'm going to go first and I'm going to read a headline and then Chris, you're going to talk about the headline and, and the news article. So the first one I got is an article about K.K. Downing, and the quote is, when Glenn Tipton retired, I fully expected that that would be the opening for me to return to Judas Priest. What do you have to say about that? You know, this is this is one of those things we've heard kind of from both ends of the spectrum, and I don't know. I kind of tend to think when... KK's talking about it. I, I feel a little bit more like there's an honesty there. I know I'm not saying the guys from Judas Priest are, are, you know, not being honest, but I think I think there's there's anger on both sides for some reason. I mean, we, I don't think we'll ever get the full explanation. Uh, the guys on Judas Priest and uh, tend to say, well, KK wanted to retire. He didn't want to continue and and uh, it, it's very much the opposite from KK, where he's saying he felt kind of like the odd man out and something was wrong and they kind of convinced him and coerced him into to quitting. Um, you know, he really didn't do anything for a long time without, uh, w- without being in Judas Priest. 
So I think, you know, that that anger kind of kept swelling, kept getting bigger. And uh, now what he's doing with um, with KK's priest, it's showing that the guy still has chops, you know. So I don't know. It's it's one of those that I think as as time rolls on, maybe we'll learn a bit more. But right now it's kind of like a he said, he said kind of thing. <laughs> um, he said, he said, it's funny. Um, you know, at first, you know, these headlines from KK have been coming up for the last several months. And the, the funny thing about it is for a while there, I really thought that the man was just plain delusional. And there was a part of me who said to him, you know, who thought that this guy just is, is trying to get back in the band so bad, you know, you quit, they don't want you back, blah, 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 blah. But then I listened to his interview with Eddie Trunk uh, from a few weeks ago. Um, and I, I must say, it's not that he's delusional. I, I feel that deep down inside, he honestly and truly felt that he made a mistake he wanted to address that mistake, and then the next day, when the band, when the band was going to do the the epitaph tour, Judas Priest was going to do epitaph. They 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 had given him the set list, and then all of a sudden they put out the press release that he retired. Now, mind you, this did come after he had said sent excuse me after he had sent the first retirement or the first uh, resignation letter. But then he, they were talking back and forth, and he was basically going to come out of retirement. Or, I mean, the public, I don't even think, knew at this time that he was going to retire. So he was not going to quit the band. He was, he enjoyed, he thought the set list was pretty good. Um, but then all of a sudden, the next day, according to him, they released the press release that um, he was retiring from the band and that they would be continuing on with Richie Faulkner. Um, so, you know. Obviously, he was hurt, and then he sent that second resignation resignation letter, which basically was a pissed off, angry KK Downey. So I I feel that this entire time, all these headlines we're reading about KK, you know, hoping to get back into priest. I mean, the guy really does hope he does want to get back into priest. He he wants to. I don't. I don't think it's for the fame or anything like that. I think these guys have spent so much of their lives together. Oh, yeah. And to I mean, be ostracized in a way, um, it's got to hurt. Yeah, I mean, he, he says that he's been friends with Ian, Ian Hill, since they were in kindergarten. They went to mm-hmm. kindergarten together. So that's how long he's known Ian Hill. I mean, KK is 69 years old, so that tells you. I mean, he's known Ian for 60-something years. Yes, that hurts. But what, the one thing I, I kind of get out of it too is that I haven't noticed him publicly kind of apologize. You know, sometimes you sit there and say, you know, I, I just want to say sorry to the guys. I just want to talk to the guys. I want to give them, a, you know, give it. I wish they would give me a chance to apologize. But I haven't heard that. I think, and, I mean, that's obviously a hard thing for a lot of people to do. Right, so and, and I think that's that's where there's a lot still that you know that whole water under the bridge. I still think there's you know there's a little bit of flooding going on, and the band right now, I think at the same time for them, Judas Priest, they're in a good place. They've got you know Richie Faulkner. I don't know if they're going to continue to have Andy Sneap on guitar, but Glenn is doing his parts you know on on albums, so that's good. Um, you know, obviously they have Scott and they have Ian and, and, and Rob. So 
I think they are in a good place themselves, and I don't think they want to come take a step back and have KK come in and possibly ruin or kind of alter the the chemistry. Even though the chemistry they had with him way back when was great, obviously towards the end there was something wrong. Whether he was angry with Glenn for Glenn's drinking or whatever the case may have been, now there's something else there. And I think that's that's what needs to be worked out on both sides before anything else can continue. But, you know, but KK wants to continue doing his thing and he's formed KK's priest. Well, you know. so, so I think that's a good segue also into the next article. And I have to say though, um, that I don't necessarily feel like you said a step back that could be in their minds that they, they, they would be taking a step back. But I think, um, and I'm going to, go over the, the, the headline of this article. K.K. Downing says K.K.'s priest is not just a version of Judas Priest. And I really feel that's true. Yes, he has Tim Ripper Owens. There is a similar style. But the fact is, the guy wrote a ton of songs for Priest. Like, that was that was his thing forever. So what, why would he be doing something different? You know, why would he be going so far outside of the range? The, this shows, like, this is, this is the you know, one of the guys that was a, a, a huge contributor to, to Judas Priest. And to me, in my mind, like maybe, yeah, maybe they think that it would be a step back, but have you listened to the two new tracks that the uh, sermons of the sinner? And, uh, what was, what was the other new one? Um, hellfire something, uh, hellfire thunderbolt. Right. Hellfire these tracks thunderbolt. are awesome. These are not a step back. These, these are, Showing that this guy still has amazing chops as a as a writer and a, a musician, so I think that fire, that anger of not getting the opportunity, not being you know part of the band uh, that he really was a big part of making, has shown like this guy can still do it. I I, I don't think the case of stepping back or going back has anything to do in terms of the songwriting or the song structures or anything about that. I I, kind of was more referencing it as taking a step back and going back to the place that they were at the time when he resigned. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I was hitting at was that they may think it would, it would be a step back because a lot of their accusations towards him was that he he wasn't contributing anymore and he he was he wasn't like the a creative force in a way and you can clearly see that's not true right and, and and sometimes you know what you know the the situation comes up where for instance they were just doing their daily thing you know mm-hmm. and maybe because he was upset with Glenn or maybe because he felt that the performances on stage were not as good, his creativity may have been stifled. We we don't know what the situation may be. So he may not have been putting his best foot forward, but when you get into a situation where you basically get kicked out of the band, because regardless, he did retire. He did quit the band, if you want to put it that way, but they didn't invite him back. So Mm -hmm. the fact that he's not part of Jewish priest, that, probably is an inspiration to him and is getting him up there and saying, hey, you know what? Look what I can do. So it, it's almost kind of like trying to prove himself all over again. And that's great because you know what? The fans are the ones that are going to end up with good music on both sides. Yes, it may not be 
Judas Priest, you know, reunited or whatever it may be. But we're getting two bands that are really kick, doing some kick-ass music because the last album from Priest, Firepower, was amazing. And this album, so far from KK's Priest, the two songs are really, really good. So it it, it shows that there's plenty out there for everybody. And I think it's going to be pretty cool, you know. And honestly, I have to say this. I think it's some of Ripper Owens' best work, too. Like, I, I, I really genuinely feel that way. So the way that everything's layered, the way that it's connecting, their, their chemistry together, it's great. So if you haven't, if you're feeling on the fence about listening to K.K. Priest, you know, get off the fence. Go ahead and listen to it. <laughs> my, my only issue, and I, I mentioned this to you earlier, <clears throat> and I never got to elaborate, so we'll elaborate on it here, is if, if I'm K.K., I... I personally don't think, and, and, and I heard what he had to say on, on the Eddie Trunk show, so it, it kind of, what I'm going to say is in con- complete contrast to what he actually said. But if I'm KK, I don't want to hire Ripper Owens. I don't want that comparison to being Judas Priest. Yes, my songs are going to sound that way because I'm the songwriter, you know, if I'm KK, but I would want my own identity and the reason why I don't think that it, Ripper gives him his own identity is because since it does already sound like a Judas Priest song, let's say Painkiller, Jugulator era, now you have the singer who sang on Jugulator playing in the band. So now you're going to make it sound like Judas Priest by having that guy who was in Priest. And I think I would have went away from that just to say, I want my own identity. But at the same time, his answer was, it, I, I'm entitled to make to, to, to this name KK's priest. I'm enti- I, I am a priest of Judas Priest. That's what he called himself, <laughs> you know. And so I get it, but at the same time, as as me, I, I would have wanted something different. But I, I mean, I get his side of it, you know. But he's also you got to think about it. This guy's, uh, you know, heading towards seventy years old as well. And as as far as like what he like, he knows what he does. You know, he knows what he he writes the the style of music at this point, and it just makes sense that he's writing Judas Priest songs because that's what he's done. You know, right, exactly. so so who do you get to to sing for a band that does Judas Priest songs? Well, I a mean, Judas Priest singer, a Judas Priest <laughs> singer, yeah. And and Tim Ripper Owens, like he's a great singer. He has the range. He has the ability. Uh, to me, it makes sense, and I get where you're coming from as well, though. So KK's Priest Sermons of the Sinner, I believe is the name. It comes out August twentieth. I think everybody should give it a chance because it's been really, really cool. The two songs that I've heard, so absolutely, uh, that is excellent. So when it comes out, I think everybody should pick it up, and we'll probably give it a good review here as well. All right. So that brings us to our next headline, and that headline is. Former Anthrax singer Neil Turbin releases debut Death Riders single and video Never Surrender. Hmm. You know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, Neil Turbin, I don't really have a lot of opinion about him per se. He's one of those guys that's kind of lived off of the legacy of being that original Anthrax singer. Um, But as far as, like, my opinions of him... I, I didn't I you know I didn't I wasn't around when when uh, he was part of Anthrax I don't know that connection per se so when I listened to this 
yes, I see the name Death Riders, and man, it's been a long time since he was in Anthrax to use that name. Um, so I don't know. I see the name and I'm like, eh. But then I kind of see who he's playing with, and you know, he's got some good mu- musicians he's playing with. Andy The Rock is the pr- producer. Um, it's kind of a cool single. It's it's nothing that really just blew my mind, but you know, um, it's I guess it's kind of good that he's putting something out there because he hasn't really done a whole lot. <laughs> you know, Neil Turbin is definitely one you know that we've we've talked about being you know an artist living off his own legacy, and the legacy is very short. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a year to a year and a half maybe, and mm-hmm. so. He's really, really, really lives off that. Now, the funny thing about it is nobody heard from Neil Turbin for the longest time. And now all of a sudden, you know, in the last couple of years, his name has popped up because he's done some shows. He's, he's, I don't know if he's gotten himself straight or, or what the deal has been or, you know, whatever. Maybe he came out of jail. I, I, I'm not making accusations. I'm kind of joking with that. I don't know where he's been for however many years until he just decided to pop up again and say, Hey, remember me? I'm the former anthrax singer. No, we don't because you were there for a year, you know? <laughs> so, um, I mean, that, those that are being kinds said of- at the same time, like if you have a talent and you're wasting that talent by not doing anything with it, it's kind of a, it's, it's sad as well, you know? So oh, I course. do like the idea of this guy getting out there and doing something again. What I don't like is just living off that legacy with the name Death Riders. He could just be performing as Neil Turbin or coming up with a new band name. This is kind of one of those same same things. Um, I feel like I, I agree more with KK when he says, you know, this was part of my legacy. I, I get that. I get where he's coming from more so than some of these other musicians that were in a band for a year or a couple years and, and it's been, you know, 30 plus years and now they're coming back with a name that's related to the the one album they were on yeah kk was in priest for 40 something years exactly neil turbin was in there for you know barely a year and a half and i agree with you the the biggest thing is yeah you know what if you're a singer great go out there and sing put together a band right Mm -hmm. and go out there on your own merits yeah, if you want to sit there and say, okay, hey, my name, my band's name is, you know, whatever, you know, the the metalheads, you know, just whatever it is, other than Death Riders, anything other than something associated with your previous band, because you can always put your name on there, say, you know, Neil Turbin in the small print, former, you know, singer for Anthrax, because people are going to know that, you know, but to sit there and and Name your band Death Riders. That's an obviously, you know, that's obviously a, a an ode to your past and to the, the first song that's on the album that you released. Okay, understandable. Play yeah. that in concert, but you don't. Yeah, need, or it, you know what? Name it, the album Death Riders. But uh, no, I, even then, it would be like J- Ronnie James Dio. You know, he leaves Rainbow. He. Um, he let's say he just went straight into his solo career from there. And then he calls his band, the men on the silver mountain or something like that. That's <laughs> no, exactly. yeah. no, like move on. Yeah. Do something, do something else. You that being said, your own merits. That know. being said, it's not a bad track. Check it out. 
see if you like it, you know, because I, like I said, it is really cool for somebody that's kind of gotten away from the music scene to a degree to come back and do something like I support that totally artists, you know, wasting their, their talent to me, it's, it's, it sucks. Cause, and I get it. I do the same thing to a degree. I'm, I'm an artist as well. And you know, I, I get, I get some, some judgment from my family, you know, as far as wasting my abilities and, and I get, I get that. You know, um, the, the other thing I got to criticize about this, and, and I, I have to call it a criticism because this is never done from when you put out promotional material. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got death writers, never surrender new single and video release out now. And they have a picture of Neil Turbin with his fist. You know, he's on vocals and, uh, and it's a Jonas Hornquist, huh? <laughs> and it's yeah, a fist of metal. <laughs> fist full of metal. You know, Jonas Hornquist on on guitar, Matt Thompson on drums, Richards Vard on bass, and Andy LaRock, the producer. Who it, does that? It's funny to me. Yeah, like I, it because Andy LaRock has such a big name. But that exactly. That's, That's why. why. That's the only reason on why. There, because Andy LaRock has a name, so he wants to have some credibility. Right, so he uses Andy LaRock's name to give himself some credibility. Dude, do it on your own merits, man. <laughs> Everybody knows who you are. Okay, why why do we have to throw Andy LaRock's name in there? Okay, let Andy LaRock be, you know, with King Diamond. Let him let him do his thing. But I just, you know, to put out a promotional, I mean, a photograph, you know, like the the, the promo material, and to throw Andy LaRock, you could sit there and say album produced by Andy LaRock. Okay, but you got to put his picture down like he's a band member. I mean, really? Come on, that and the, to that me, picture of uh, of Neil Turbin is like twenty years old too. <laughs> he's been using that same promotional image for <laughs> a long oh, time. Geez. Anyway, good luck to Neil. You know, I, I hope he does well. But you know, I, I just I find it just very funny. So, all right. So another Anthrax article. Um, so this one is about the time period when they fired Joey Belladonna and, uh, hired John Bush. And this kind of came to my attention recently anyway, because I've been watching the, uh, the Anthrax videos they've been releasing every week, uh, at the Anthrax 40. Um, you know, it's, it's, was really interesting because you watch all the, the previous episodes up until this last week when they did Sound of White Noise. And everything came off as very genuine. Um, the first, the first couple episodes were really interesting because you've got Dan Lilker's perspe- perspective, uh, where he's talking about you know his contributions to the band at the very beginning, and then being kicked out based on you know Neil Turbin, who we just talked about, etc. And there was some uncomfortableness there, but there was also it was very genuine. Like there was no qualms, there was no, you know, walking on eggshells to try to get this point across. But when it got, came to this episode, it was really interesting to see there was kind of a, a different aspect to it where they're talking about the firing of Joey Belladonna and the, the, they keep saying this thing. And, it, and I remember uh, Frank saying it. I remember Ian's, uh, Scott Ian saying it. And I think Charlie even said the same thing where it was, it was never personal. It wasn't anything about, you know, him as he was our brother, you know, for so long, he was the guy. 
it was just one of those like we we felt like musically we were going in a different direction and we had to ma- make this but but it was never personal and uh it was a really hard decision but i remember watching that metal show years ago and talking about how oh he was so happy joey uh, uh i mean john uh, john was the guy jo- john was the guy they always wanted in the band um that sound that changed like so it's funny that you can go back to older interviews older articles stuff like that and get this different perspective whereas now you can feel you, you, you just watch that video the, the the sound of white noise one from this last week and you can just feel them just tiptoeing around the subject you know bottom line is you know i i was there i guess you want to say you know i was a fan at that time i was you know waist deep into anthrax uh and they could sit there and say all they want about it was nothing personal no it wasn't because you know what at the end of the day they didn't hate joey um they actually kept in touch with joey over the years okay but joey was bitter i could tell you that because it it it, it came across when he did an, a, a band called belladonna and the the I have the album and he did a song called Blunt Man, which is it's got a double meaning to it, but it was you know, and then and there was I forgot what there's another song on there I think is more related to this, but he expressed his feelings in his lyrics, which is unusual because he wasn't allowed to do lyrics for anthrax or didn't not that he wasn't allowed, but I guess he never contributed, but he put this band together, came up with some stuff, and he expressed himself and there was some resentment towards being fired from anthrax so, to a degree there's still that resentment because he he refuses to play anything from the the john bush era yeah i mean he did only on that first tour back you know they did only and he did a good job with it uh it's on the the uh, the sophia big four dvd release so it's I think he he was kind of trying to get in their good graces so he can stay in the band. And then once he was in, he's like, "Look, I don't want to do this. You know, why why do we need to do this?" And and I and I understand his point. Same reason why why does Rob Halford not do um, Ripper era stuff? Bottom line, he's Rob Halford. He shouldn't have to. But I think as a, as a band, Judas Priest, that's Judas Priest music. So he should do that music. Bruce Dickinson doesn't have a problem doing Blaze stuff. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't have a problem doing Paul stuff, although he kind of had to. That was they were only two year old band at that time. Well, two year old recording band. Um, regardless, <clears throat> Anthrax. They it wasn't personal, but they definitively wanted a different singer because they wanted to go in a grungy direction, a harder. How much harder can you get? than Among the Living. How much harder can you get than some of the songs that are on State of Euphoria? It wasn't about hardness, in my opinion. It was about a voice that matched the music. Joey's technically didn't match the music. It was trying to survive in the era of... I mean, let's let's be honest. Nirvana ruined the careers of a lot of musicians. That, oh, of course. That, that change in the style... Like when when Teen Spirit came out, it changed the world. It did, and so I think 
you know, coming off of got uh, was uh, Persistence of Time, Scott Ian had a really tough time with that album with Joey because the lyrics were extremely personal on, on Persistence of Time. And he has stated this in multiple interviews that he was having Joey sing these lyrics that were extremely personal and they weren't coming off the way that he meant them or felt them. And so there was this this kind of animosity between the two of them in a way, and it was kind of one-sided, where it was coming from e, or from Scott Ian, but it wasn't necessarily from Joey. It was just that Joey wasn't quite getting what was coming out of Scott's heart, you know. Then so, talk about it, you know. Tell you know that's that's the one thing I don't you know. Talk about it. That's what you got to do. If you if you feel that so-and-so is not coming across the way you want him to come across, then let him know that. Sit there and say, hey, you know what, Joey? I think you should have more balls in this one. I think you should have you know, a little bit more anger because I have anger. Those are my words. Okay, Scott Ian knew the deal. He created the deal when he wrote, started writing the lyrics because no one else would write the lyrics. So he invented this issue that he's having with Joey at that time. And yeah, I understand it's personal, but you know what? The the bottom line is, is, look at Iron Maiden. Everybody writes lyrics in Iron Maiden. Now, does everybody get their lyrics done? Steve writes lyrics, Bruce writes lyrics, and you know, Dave. Is, I'm pretty sure Dave and Adrian have written lyrics for the band. You know, so they're not all used. It's mostly just Bruce and Steve. But the bottom line is, is Bruce is singing songs that someone else wrote the lyrics to. I mean, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, completely written by Steve Harris, and he and he drops out the, the lyrics. He says, here, this is what you're going to sing. Yeah, but Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is also written, are based on a, a book. It's not, no, know, it's not based personal. on I get personal it. None of their stuff experiences. is really personal. Yeah. I get that. I think, but, I think there was, you know, that's just the tipping point. There was, there was things going on behind the scenes and that fear of what was going on with Nirvana, etc., with the grunge scene, and then the the animosity for, on the personal level from from Scott Ian, etc., led to that change to John Bush. And it may, yeah, it may not have been personal per se, but I don't think it was not an easy decision, as they claim. No, I don't think so. I mean, it it was it was tough. I get that. I can see that. Now, the funny thing is, when they fired him, I don't think it was one of these things fired him on, on Friday and on Monday, John joins the band. No, it wasn't so, because it, they actually were auditioning people. Uh, the band wasn't the re- the record labor. labor. The record label was, uh, was auditioning people for the band to, to try to get somebody in there. And um, they actually reached out, the band themselves reached out to uh, Johnny Z and had them contact John Bush. And John Bush actually initially declined. So there, there was a process in this. So, because um, John also didn't want to repeat uh, what kind of happened with him in Metallica. You know where they asked him to do it, so he was just he was just like I, I don't want to like I don't want to be part of some band that um, like I don't want this weight on my shoulders. You know, 
which well, is I mean, he's a humble guy. He's a, he's a he's a cool guy. I really like. There, there's a difference, you know. His his turning Metallica down was the same reason why he didn't turn Anthrax down. You know, because in reality, he's like, look, I I turned it down once. You know, now I get an opportunity to do this again. I'm going to take it. Um, I get that. You know, and John. You know, Look, when they announced that John was going to be the singer for Anthrax, I was excited. I love John. I've always loved John. Ever since I heard about him, and you know, when I was introduced to Armored Saint, I mean, I bought their first album, I got their second album. Their stuff is good. You know, medieval, straightforward heavy metal. I mean, there's when you look up heavy metal in the in the dictionary, realistically, Armored Saint should be the band that represents heavy metal as far as pureness because. They've never done anything but play straightforward heavy metal. And, you know, it's not about being super hard. It's not about being thrash. It's not about being, you know, uh, teased hair. They were the guys. I mean, they were, you know, the whole medieval thing kind of went away after a while, but they were they were pure. Now, I love John's voice. So I was excited when he, when he was going to join the band. I was, you know, then when the album came out, man, that album's awesome. Sound of White Noise is great. Everything after that is became a problem for a variety of different reasons. But going back to this article and this, the the stuff that you mentioned about how they tiptoed around it is be, why are they tiptoeing around it? I the, the reason why I think they're tiptoeing around the whole thing is obviously they don't want to offend Joey, so they want to keep him on their good side. Because quite honestly, Joey's got the band by the balls. Okay. Whether anybody wants to admit this or not, Joey's in the driver's seat when it comes to anthrax. Absolutely. Because, if, because yeah, because if he leaves, okay, who are they going to get? Are they going to try and get another singer, uh, an established singer? Okay, they, they, they lost John, and then they went to go and get Dan Nelson. That was an absolute debacle. <laughs> and then they got John back for a couple of shows, and then they got Joey back permanently. If Joey leaves, they're done, and they know it. So they're 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 on too good of a run right now to screw that up. So Joey, if if you notice when you if you read interviews or you watch you know videos online, he freaking sticks them in the ribs almost every time he can. And I don't know if he does it on purpose or if it's a subconscious reflex thing, kind of you know, trying to keep his place, I guess you could say, but he's, you know, he, oh, why didn't they ask me to sing deeper? Oh, I could have done the same thing that John did. You know, it, he doesn't reference John by, by name, but he tries to kind of say, I could have done that too. Mm-hmm. We could have done, you know, so he, he gives him the jab. He sticks him in the ribs every so often or as much as possible. And it's funny to me to, to see this because I'm like, man, and these guys are just like, he's the best thing. I, I We've always loved Joey. But if you always loved Joey, you should have never fired him. You know, put it that way. You wouldn't be tipping. You wouldn't be tiptoeing around this episode. <laughs> That's just the way it is. You know, and now the next bunch of albums is you see Anthrax go on with are going to be talking about the disaster that was the record contract with Electra, the disaster that was record contract with whoever the hell put out volume eight, you know? Yeah. And, and then, you know, reestablishing themselves. So it's, it's kind of funny, but you know, they're tiptoeing because of their own faults. Oh, absolutely. 
All right. We have talked about anthrax, and uh, you had a article on Michael Kiske. Yeah, we can go over this one pretty quick. I just thought it was interesting. Um, so apparently um, when Bruce Dickinson left Iron Maiden, um, there was a lot of talk, especially in Europe, that a lot of people believed that Michael Kiske of Halloween, um, he had already left the band, so he was actually free at the time. There was There was a lot of speculation that he was going to be the next Iron Maiden singer. And to be honest, I really feel like that would have been very interesting. Um, I don't think it would have lasted any longer than, say, Blaze did. Because, I mean, you got to admit, Bruce is, is the Iron Maiden singer. Um, but I guarantee you, I probably would have enjoyed that a lot better than uh, than the Blaze era. <laughs> um. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's an interesting choice. I mean, I like Michael's voice. Um, he he's got the range. He's in the same, you know, kind of ability that that uh, Bruce has, and probably even a, 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 in some cases a little bit better. Because there is a there is a point in which Bruce's notes are, you know, he only goes as so high as he can go before it turns into a full-blown, just a, a scream like on Number of the Beast, where I think Michael gets a little higher, but that, that's neither here nor there. It, it it fits what he needs to fit when it when, when the song is done. I think it would have worked well for what it was worth. Would it have lasted? Probably not, because, again, people were going to still be clamoring. But I think it would have eased the fans a little bit more mm-hmm. had there been someone who was more like... Bruce, yeah, which Michael is more like Bruce than Blaze is. Put it that way. I mean, he claims that he he doesn't think he would have joined, but you never know what you would do unless you're faced with the actual question. Like if they had come to him and said, "We want you to be the singer," I tend to think he probably would have been like, "Yeah, let's go." <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. I mean, he's not doing anything, and you know, you're talking about ste- stepping on stage with an established band that's going to blow away anything you even seen with Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you take that opportunity and you run with it as far as you can. That's what Blaze did until they said, uh, we're... Play the play Sorry. Goodbye. So, you know, you know, we don't know whatever would have happened because history is the way it is right now. But it's a, it is a cool way to, to look back at something and say, you know, yeah, they told me I was the singer in the band, you know, European news people. Mm -hmm. that's news to me (laughs) all right um talking about money to some degree with michael kiske and i think that was had uh, that was kind of the idea too would michael kiske have joined because they said here look at all this money you're going to get because he was going to get into a payroll situation matt heafy from trivium reveals his monthly twitch revenue says he will stream daily from the road. What do, what do you think about that? You know, it's interesting. I have a, uh, a close friend that's a comedian, and since he hasn't been able to travel this last year and do his normal thing, um, by the way, his his name is Nemer Abu Nassar. He's, he's one of the most, he is the most famous comedian in the Middle East. He, he's actually one of the guys that brought 
comedy to the Middle East, which is really cool, you know, just to, to have that mentality to want to change things in an area that's, you know, typically at least known to Americans as just war torn and, 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 you know, of a different mindset. So he's always wanted to bring laughter and, and comedy. Um, this last year has been really difficult for him in a way because he wasn't able to tour. He's, he tours all over the United States, all over the world. And um, so he had to kind of come up with a new business plan to change what he's going to do. So he actually got on Twitch and started streaming and has made it a, a really good source of income. And that's what that Matt Heafy's doing. He's um, he basically he said his Twitch channel he makes just under ten thousand dollars a month, whereas when he was um, traveling with Trivium he was doing about eleven thousand dollars a month. So that's that's pretty big. That's that to 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 say like he can he can do both, and that's what Nimmer's going to be doing as well, where he is going to be. Um, traveling and doing tour dates, but also continue streaming. So he has that other form of income. That's awesome. Like that's, that is, that is something that has never been around before this availability to reach a larger audience. And that kind of goes into another article we're going to talk about in a little bit where there are so many avenues that these guys have that they didn't have before. And, and sometimes they have to. Because the money that they're getting from streaming, the money that they're getting from from record sales is not the same that it used to be. So there is there is a new world that these musicians are having to adapt to. And I totally appreciate the ingenuity of a guy like Matt Heafy who's who's going in a different direction and doing something like he's not he's not complaining. You know, he just he's adapting to survive. No, I, I agree. I mean, props to him for for making that much money on Twitch. Um, and and the the thing is, he's making ten thousand dollars for himself a month, mm-hmm. whereas the eleven thousand he was making with Trivium, he's got to divide with the other band members plus pay the payroll for all the other guys that go with them. So that was a a lot less than three thousand dollars, you know, a month that he's coming home with. So you think about that. So the machine of Trivium is making eleven thousand dollars. The machine of Matt Heafy is making ten thousand. So, but you have to think he wouldn't be able to make that kind of money on Twitch had he not built his name as a musician. Which also oh, kind of kinda also kind of shows that there is a little bit of a social problem in the music industry of why are these guys making so little money as touring acts when they they this guy can go on Twitch. And make ten thousand dollars a month. I mean, he's making triple of his salary, or or what his income from from trivia. He's making triple on Twitch, just just sitting there for two hours a day or three hours a day, whatever it is that he does. He does two shows every day. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, more power to him. I, I see, and and you've talked before about the guy from Dragon Force, yeah, who also has a Twitch channel. And I, I see, I see this for especially for a lot of the. The younger, or not even younger, a lot of the independent things. Because I know Jason Bittner from Overkill and Shadows Fall, he has his own Twitch channel. He's constantly doing uh, drums, uh, uh, you know, songs. He's he's playing over, you know, the songs Gina, from from uh, the bands that he's he either likes or or he's been a part of. Yeah, Gina Hoagland has has a Twitch channel. Um, 
Yeah, Herman Lee, as you mentioned with Dragon Force. There's a lot of these guys. And what's interesting, too, is even people that are not necessarily fans of the band, they there are a lot of people that, that enjoy watching these streams because they respect the musicians for what they're capable of. And they're not necessarily just playing, say, trivium music. He's playing a lot of other stuff. He's talking about guitars. He's, you know, there's there's more to it than just that level. So he's reaching a wider audience than he would with just his trivium music. Exactly. And, in you know, um, we're going to touch upon this because, you know, the the part of the $11,000 that he mentioned that he was getting from touring and, and other stuff, such as on-demand services, um, again, he's splitting it with his bandmates. Um, so the, 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 the demand, excuse me, the on demand services like Spotify, Apple music and, and YouTube, we're going to, we're going to touch upon that in another article in a few minutes. Um, but it, it's just amazing what these guys are, are capable and willing to do to, to make more money. And that's great. It's better for all of us because we have as fans, we have all these different avenues that we can see and almost, I mean, they call it social media. You can almost interact because in some cases, yeah, they read what you're typing. You're typing, you know, in not all cases can they see you, you know, like, like what Metallica did when they did that, um, uh, that all within my hand show where they had all the cameras, uh, or all the video monitors where they could see and interact with people. I thought that was pretty cool. They, they literally took the WWE idea of having an audience on the video screen and they actually made it interactive where, you know, the WWE could hear them cheering, but Metallica did it in a room. There was, you know, like a large rehearsal space. And it, it was, that was super cool because they were actually talking to the fans. That is really neat. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. It's another thing where you can get connect to your fans and make money on it. So it's, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty cool. In fact. Yeah, it's it, it's a different world to a degree with with kids growing up and what they expect out of out of media than what what we got. You can see that the movie industry is not the same as it once was. Uh, TV shows are not quite the same. There's a lot of people that only follow YouTube stars and Twitch and uh, you know these uh, TikToks and that kind of stuff. Like it's a different world. And we, we kind of have to adapt and realize that things are changing. And there's musicians that are able to adapt and kind of go outside of the box. You know, that's great. Not everybody's able to do that. Not everybody is able to be, you know, a, a Twitch star because they don't have the personality. Maybe they don't want to be directly in front of the camera. Whereas when they were a different part of the band, like say, you know, say a guy who's just, you know, the bass player in the band doesn't really want to be the face um but is happy touring and, and writing music etc uh like say if, uh, geezer butler you know geezer butler even though he had his solo career he still had you know he wasn't necessarily the face of the band you know in a way so i get that and not everybody wants to be in that situation but it is awesome that despite a lot of these guys not getting really what they're due from streaming outlets, etc. They're finding a way to persevere and adapt and, and, and continue their career. Exactly. And you had brought up an article, um, 
about Miles Kennedy that kind of touches upon similar aspects. What, what was that article about? So basically, he's just talking about the same thing that we're we're hitting here. Like when he was growing up as a musician, um, he you know it was different than it, what it is now. And and Miles is not far off. He's you know right between our age, and um, he's got that that perspective that. I think both of us do where things were different. Like we could go to a record store when we were young and it's not, it's not really like that to the same degree. There still are record stores, but it's not the same. It's not what it used to be. So he's, he's more focusing on, yeah, it was like that, but things have changed and there are a lot of avenues that guys have to become famous, become these musicians that they didn't necessarily have before. And he's talking about just, just that, like the Twitch is an outlet. Um, there are lots of people that are self-producing their music and getting it out there. And you don't, you're not. It's not a, it's not a music industry per se anymore. It's a songwriting industry. And so, things are changing. And I think that's kind of leading into the next article that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, to t- to touch briefly on on Miles's uh, thing. The, the music industry, you know, even from, you know, when I was 20 years old and I was involved in the record store side of it, I also kind of got involved with through some friends with the, in the actual record label portion of it, just kind of the promotional part of it. And, you know, we, him and I, or, or it was a couple of them, both males, that we, we talked about how, you know, their job as being an intern in some cases, and they became, you know, full-time promotional people where they, you know, their job was to, to go out to record stores and put up poster flats, the, the 12 in, the 12 by 12 flats that look like the album covers and create these designs that would attract people and, and get them to see what the album covers were or, or the albums were. And, you know, uh, what is it? They, they, put up, you know, the merchandise in the stores and made these displays. That was one portion of it that was to promote the album. Back in those days, 20 years ago, um, 30 years ago, 40, 50, the, the whole idea was you had a record company signed act. The act then basically was a slave to the record company for, for lack of a better term, because the record company gave the artist all the money to make the album, to promote the album, to publish the album. And then they took all the money back based on the album sales and their touring. And until that was all paid back, that's you, the, the artist didn't see a profit until they didn't see a dime until they, they, broke even and in some cases you know you get a big you get a big bonus but bonuses didn't start happening until the late 80s but you you know you got yourself a bonus uh, and they gave you money and you know you were able to live but you had to pay that back so it was kind of weird you know you're living on this money so if you were outrageous spender you had to you had to sell some records in order to you know get that money back or, or give that money back Today is a completely different business model where you don't need these record companies. Now, in many cases, it helps because they're the ones who get you on the streaming service. You don't have to do it. They're the ones who get you 
everything that you need to do to get through the door instead of you having to do it yourself. But the bottom line is you can do it yourself. And so the, the, the record industry has definitely changed. As you say, the songwriting industry, I would say more artist industry, you know, musician industry, because they have to, it's almost, almost DIY to some degree, all of it. And because of that, that brings us to the next article with Derek Green from Sepultura. And his article talks about Derek Green would love to see artists get what they deserve from streaming music services. He believes it's completely unfair. Now, to touch base on this, I know I, I, I forgot to mention it to you earlier about this article. This article touches upon the fact that streaming services take advantage of musicians and artists. Everybody agrees with that. The only one who doesn't agree with that is the owners of the streaming services. And they haven't been sued big enough or by a big enough artist to make a difference yet. It's coming. I I feel the groundswell. I think it's coming because too many musicians are talking about it. But the other point in Derek's article is he thinks there should be some sort of in, in unions, bad word uh, to many people, um, but there should be some sort of organization that helps artists by artists putting money into it, and then you know they have health insurance, they have a retirement fund, and so forth. It's very similar to how actors are. As soon as you become, as soon as you're in a movie, or as soon as you're on television. You get one freebie, and then you have to be part of SAG. So if you don't want to be part of SAG, then you can't really be on TV anymore. So you you almost automatically have to be part of SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild. Um, so if you want to do stuff, you got to become a SAG member. And once you become a member, you, you're kind of like in. You know, you're in the circle. And I think musicians need that. I, I, I what do you think about that? What's your idea on that? Um, you know, it's uh, there has to be a lot of reform in the way that uh, the streaming services are paying musicians. Um, there, there obviously is a problem. Um, I don't personally know enough about how the the pay structure works, etc. Um, but I know a lot of money is going to the top executives. You know, and that's that's how it is in a lot of of uh. A lot of companies, a lot of uh, just that's just how it works. I mean, in a capitalist society, um, but there is a huge disparity from the the people that are getting the money, the the guys at the top, versus the people that are creating the content. And uh, it used to be, yeah, that it, when you're a musician, you could if you were a, a hit musician, the money flowed a lot more. For these guys it's not like that anymore they're having to work a lot harder for a lot less they're still getting paid fairly well um depending on who they are and what kind of content they're putting out but but it's tough it's it's a lot different than it used to be and um there definitely has to be some serious reform i'm just not sure on what level exactly and 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 the problem is because 
you know, musicians, and, and I don't want to use this term the way it's going to sound. Musicians are a dime a dozen. There's a musician everywhere. So the question is the professional musicians. Let's put it that way. Professional musicians who get paid for a living, whether they're, you know, obviously doing a song, you know, they're singer songwriters that submit their music and, you know, an artist that is recording something selects their song, they get money. If they, you know, you have musicians who are studio musicians, you have musicians that are uh, stage musicians, and you have professional touring artists. So all those professionals, somehow, some way, need to, I don't know, somehow get the bigger agencies that represent them to talk to each other and figure out a way. But yes, you are right. There needs to be some sort of reform. Who knows how that's going to happen? Nobody. Because it's never happened before. But it, it's something that somebody needs to have a conversation with. With somebody else. Obviously, it has to be some sort of higher up. But not in a record company. Because they're just going to be looking for themselves. It's got to be some the, the agencies that represent the artist. Yeah, so. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come from somebody. You know, in a similar situation to... Um, you know, Lars, you know, picking up on on what was going on with Napster, etc. It's going to have to be something along those lines where one of these musicians goes, this is this is more than than a, you know, acceptable problem. We need to change this. And uh, it has to be somebody as big as as a Metallica that's going to change it. Because right, I you, agree. You gotta imagine, like somebody like Beyonce, for instance, who's who is, you know, making hand, money hand over fist. They're probably getting paid better than most of these musicians that that these companies can take advantage of, and so they're not raising a stink because they don't have to. You know what I mean? Like they they don't they don't have to have the same. Like, I mean, some of these pop musicians have it way better than other genres that aren't as popular right now. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, and that's why it is, because there are so many musicians, that is where the problem arises. You have so many different genres, so many different musicians, you know, and then in some cases, in some genres, you have musicians who don't like the other guy. So it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to deal with, um, and that's why there has to be some sort of something that comes from the agencies that represent some of these artists. But you're right; it has to be a, a Lars type. It has to be, let's even say, uh, it has to be a Carrie Underwood type or a Taylor Swift type of person. It would have, that yeah, has ta- pull. a Taylor Swift, yeah, for sure. You know, they have to have some sort of pull. Mm-hmm. And even then, like someone like Jimmy Iovine, who who is is big in the music industry, you know, or even a Simon Cowell, someone like that has to sit there and say, "What do we do to help these people, or how do we get them to be, you know, more organized?" I mean, you don't obviously you're not trying to to do a handout to them in that regards, but you you're trying to figure out a way where musicians can survive. Well, but, I mean, if they're making enough money from 
the the material that they're putting out, then they don't have to have some kind of system in place. Like I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying. I think I think he's saying that out of the fact that it is harder to survive as a as a musician right now. Um, but what I think the real problem is is they're just not getting paid well enough based on what they should be getting from royalties on uh, the, the content that they're actually creating. The the problem is the Spotify's etc are just not giving them what they're due. So I don't necessarily right. agree that there should be some kind of union protecting them. I just think they should get the money that they that, that they're owed and it, it not be going straight to these these Spotify executives instead. Correct. Correct. I get that and it's it's a conversation that can go on for days and hours and years and months. So all right, so that brings us to our final article or final two articles of the evening, which are they're both related to KISS. And the first one is regarding Peter Chris and his refusal to grant KISS permission to use Beth in the A&E biography Kissery, which comes out at the end of the month. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, there, there's two parts to this article, and it's funny because one of it is, you know, Peter Chris is kind of saying, look, you know, I didn't want to... I didn't want to give them permission because, you know, they're, they're not going to tell my side of the story or, you know, how, whatever it is, you know, Paul and Gene and, you know, management went to their managers and their legal, whatever, and said, Hey, we, you know, the producers of the, the, the documentary said, Hey, can we use the song? Can we use Beth in, in the, uh, in the biography? And he, they, he said, no, because he's the songwriter and he's the one who basically has to get permission for the use of the song, for whatever. Um, quite honestly, that part of the story, I mean, it, it continues to show the bitterness between Ace and Peter and Paul and Gene. You know, there's still that line, you know, they're not getting paid enough or they don't, you know, they're, we know that Gene and Paul are making more money. We should be getting the same you know, it's always about money, money, money when it comes to these four guys. And <laughs> two of them saying they don't get enough and the other two saying we don't need to pay you more. You know, so Peter Chris turns around and says, you know what, I'm not going to let you use the song. You can use old interview footage. You can use whatever else you want, but you're not using the song. You're not getting a new interview. And Ace Freely said the same thing. I understand where uh, they're coming from. I mean, there is there is an absolute bitterness between these four men and it's so silly you know it's they're they're adults that are still acting like children and <laughs> I, I mean it's like we you, you know well you can't play with my toys if you don't let me you know and and so i get where he's coming from i do but at the same time it's like who suffers in all of this always the fans. The fans. fans. Always. Now, the funny thing, the, the article is also twofold. It, it's it's not necessarily a defensive article in you know on Peter Chris's side because there's a point that they bring up with Paul Stanley, and he says, you know, he's, he claims Peter had nothing to do with the creation of that song, um, but because it was going on a Kiss album and because he was going to sing it, they gave him songwriting credits because he was friends with Stan Penridge, who was the guy who wrote the song. Now, Paul claims, if you can write one hit, you can write two. That was always his his line when it came to Peter Chris. 
Now, I don't know about the other Peter Chris songs because, you know, he did do, oh, no shit, he didn't do Hard Luck Woman. Paul gave him that song. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, you know, apparently Peter contributed um, one song, I think, to Dynasty, which was Dirty Living. Um, didn't contribute anything to Unmasked because he wasn't part of the band anymore. Um, did his solo album. He contributed Hooligan. Uh, I think, I, I'm not sure Hooligan, if, if that was a Stan Penridge song as well or not. I can't remember who wrote that song. But the issue is that Paul says that Peter had nothing to do with it. Peter turns around and says, hey, you're full of shit. I wrote the song. But then, you know, in a, a 2000, a year 2000 interview with Stan Penridge before he passed away, basically said Peter had nothing to do with the song. So it, it's one of those things where he gave away the song because Peter's in the band and, you know, Peter wants to get, get some sort of credit. Because, you know, he was always looking for credit. <laughs> so it's it's pretty sad. I mean, all around, on everybody's part, it's just pretty sad that, you know, there's name calling, there's finger pointing, there's, you know, my wallet's bigger than your wallet, you know, my dick is bigger than your dick. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and that's just the way it goes with those guys. Yeah, it's, it's never changing and it's it's not going to. It's not going to. And then that leads us to... More Kiss information where Paul Stanley says Kiss can continue without him and Gene Simmons in it. The band is bigger than any member. Go ahead and give me your opinion on that one. <laughs> to me, this is delusion. I mean, it, it really is. Um, to think that Kiss is like they've created this kind of uh, almost like a religion that's just going to continue throughout the generations or something. It's an army, not it, a religion. It's an army. Oh, it's it's beyond <laughs> just an army. I mean, at least in their minds. Um, I get it. There, people are going to be Kiss fans forever. But um, I don't think you can have Kiss as just a cover band, you know, being promoted by by Gene and Paul. I I, I don't think that's going to be successful. You're you're going to always continue to have cover bands, but the, what are they going to put out new albums? Like what what are they what is this? Like is it just the biggest Kiss cover band of all time cuz they're promoted by the band? It 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 doesn't it doesn't work. They can think that it works that way. They're never going to be the same size. They're never going to be the same draw. They're not going to get four guys to stand in their place and draw 25,000 people or 10,000 people or 5,000 people. It's just not. No. You know, they're, I agree with you completely. They are 100% delusional. It's a, it's a fantastic idea because someone's blowing smoke up the rest. It, it's absolutely the I think, reason. I think they're blowing smoke up each other's asses. I think they really believe their hype to the fullest degree and they just they think that yeah we could just step out put two new guys in and it's going to be the same and we're just going to keep making money and it, it they probably will for a little bit but not near as much and it's going to die off because it's like oh i'm going to go see kiss oh who's in kiss now you know like it's it's not the band 
Well, you know, but you like you pointed out to me today, Iron Butterfly does not have an original member in it. Yeah, but you Iron know, Butterfly so. doesn't have the clout that <laughs> Kiss has. I mean, okay, Foreigner, you know. Yeah, and that's the feeling that I have. Like when somebody tells me I want, I'm going to go see Foreigner. It's like, oh, you're going to go see the Foreigner cover band. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have a guy who's taken the torch, and uh, from from Lou Graham. And he is he is doing so. You got the Steven Tyler lookalike, who who's taking the torch from Lou Graham, and he's leading Forner. You know what? Completely understandable that they go out there. You know, and every so often Mick Jones shows up and they play. They sold out the Woodlands here in Houston. You know, in the outdoor venue. They tour. They have a big tour. You know, people enjoy it. The music is good. Kiss is slightly different appeal. They're not as across the masses as a foreigner. So are they going to get that kind of draw? I don't they're not even getting that draw now and there's two guys there. This end of the road tour is not even drawing a Madison Square Garden size arena everywhere they go. Yeah. So, I mean, when they came here to Houston, they played at the at the the Smart Financial Center. Judas Priest played there. That that holds like four thousand, four or five thousand people tops. Yeah. So they're not they're not playing the Toyota Center, you know. They're not playing uh, the Woodlands. They're playing the Smart Financial Center. So that's a completely different vibe. So to to think that they're going to be able to do that now. Or in the future, put it in the future with two people who don't represent Kiss that are, you know, let me say that again. To think they're going to do that in the future with two people who are not Paul and Gene playing the star child and the demon, it's just not never going to happen, you know. And I, I almost think Paul could pull it off without Gene more than Gene can pull it off without Paul. Well, I agree there for sure because, you know? I mean, Paul is the front man. Um, yeah, Gene sings a lot of songs, but when I think of of Kiss vocals, um, I would immediately go to Paul, not not Gene. Absolutely. So they are definitely uh, in a in a in a different world when it comes to what they think that this band can continue. Sure, you can have an officially endorsed cover band. That's fantastic. You're gonna get more people to come out there than the than the four hundred that show up for Kiss Alike here in Houston. <laughs> okay, you know, but eventually, eventually, it's gonna be the four hundred people. <laughs> exactly, eventually. So you know, whatever it is, yeah, they might come. They might they might do the House of Blues, and you might see a really cool Kiss show at the House of Blues. But it's a cover band. It's not Paul. It's not Gene. You know, and Ace and and Ace and Peter have proven that you can continue without them, and, and it is what it is. But never going to be the same. Yeah, but that was, the, you know, that's the lead guitarist and the, the drummer who, yeah, they sang a couple songs. But that's just it. The, this, the majority of the catalog was sung by uh, um, Paul, Paul and Gene. Gene. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let them let them have their delusions. You know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so that brings us to the end of the evening when it comes to our headlines um i hope you guys enjoyed it um we're hoping that if you guys do enjoy it that we'll be able to do this maybe you know every month or so and come up with some more headlines and and chit chat about it um 
for now, we are coming to our big four metal drummers. And I started last week, so I think you can go first this week. All right. Let's see. Okay, so my number four, I'm going to go with Yaska Ratikanen. Um, he is the drummer from Children of Bottom. And the biggest reason I picked him was they are one of my favorite bands of all time. But I remember hearing his drums on those first few albums and just being absolutely mind blown. And uh, it really it made me want to actually play the drums. I, I uh, you know, was was trying to push to to play drums and I just don't really have that ability. I, I un- unfortunately, like I, I have rhythm, but I don't have that kind of rhythm. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I, even though the guy was really inspiring to me and and uh, I absolutely love his work with the, with bottom, I'd love to see him do more beyond that. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he wasn't inspiring enough to, to turn me into a, a great drummer. Um, my number three is Scott Travis of Judas Priest and Fight and Racer X. Uh, I really like what he did with Racer X. Uh, when he came to Judas Priest and he played on Painkiller, my mind, again, was just blown. That, like, that open air to... Uh, to painkiller oh my god and just what he did to change that band from what i would view as a hard rock band um in their early days when when he took over from dave holland who um and even he really took over from dave holland's uh replacement of a drum machine um (laughs) he uh he just changed judas priest for me his work with the band through the the Ripper Owens era, and then everything that's come since, just absolutely fantastic. What he did with Fight, I love. Um, yeah, Scott Travis. Uh, my number two is Richard Christie. Uh, kind of an odd choice because I think you pr- primarily primarily know Richard from uh, what's that guy's name? The Howard Stern Show. Yeah, uh, I, I don't even know Richard from that, you know, because I even though I was a fan of Howard Stern, I, I think I was I stopped listening to Howard before Richie was on there. So I heard about Richard, uh, Rich, or yeah, I heard about him afterward. Gotcha. And so I heard he was a comedian. I heard he showed up on Stern, but I I didn't even know he was a drummer uh, for, for you know for these metal bands that he was a drummer for. So it's it's weird. I didn't I didn't know him as a comedian. I didn't know him as a drummer either. Yeah, so he he was a drummer for Death, Control Denied, Demons of Wizard, and Iced Earth. Um, I don't like the Iced Earth albums he played on very much, uh, specifically the second one. Um, but his drum work is the highlight of that album to me. Uh, it's the uh, Glorious Burden. Not a big fan, um, but I really love his work on it. Uh, Demons and Wizards, I really liked. Unfortunately, I'm going to have a hard time listening to either of those bands because of, uh, of uh, what's his name? Um, Tim Schafer. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. John, no, John, John Schaefer. Schaefer. Tim Schafer's the uh, video game guy. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but his work with Death, he is 
possibly the best uh, as far as technicality goes. He is an amazing drummer, and it's really too bad that he doesn't. He hasn't done much other work. He did play for a band called. Um, I'm trying to remember. It was it was some of the Death guys got together, and he actually played with Ripper Owens in this band as well. And I'm trying to think of the name, but it, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. It, it's one of those kind of. It, you got a lot of guys that are really talented, but. Um, it's called Charred Walls of the Damned. A lot of a lot of really talented musicians in one group, but just no, like no real bangers that just you know stick with you. Um, but but just if you get the chance to listen to his drum work, you'll be blown away and pro- possibly a little disappointed that he hasn't done more in the music scene. And then my number one has got to be Gene Hoglan. Uh, Gene Hoagland played with Death. He's he's the current and and the entire career he's played with Death Clock. Uh, plays with Testament. He's played with so many other bands. Uh, I love the work he's doing with Testament now. It gives them a much heavier edge. Uh, Death Clock is one of those like yeah, it's it's a cartoon, but the the what makes it is the music, and the music is good. There's a, a kind of a silly edge to it, but it's not s- just stupid. It's it's you know it's it's self-aware in a way you know where you can recognize some of the silliness of metal, but still take it damn seriously and just kick ass. And I love Death Clock. Um, and then Death, obviously, I've mentioned many times, is my favorite band. I love the two albums that he played on. He was so good. Um, and I have a hard time picking any anybody else other than Gene Hoglan. I'm so glad I've gotten to see him in, on tour with different bands. I saw him with Testament, and um, I just I'm so glad I've gotten the opportunity to see him live. Uh, I actually um, I did get to see Yaska as well. I have never seen Scott Travis or Richard Christie, and that that greatly disappoints me. You know, I got to see Scott recently, and I think. Uh I have to talk about him in a second because he's on my list, and we'll talk about him in a minute. Um, I I I love your list. I respect the hell out of your list. We actually have two duplicates, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, this this subject of best metal drummer or big four metal drummer is is really really hard. To, um, oh yeah, there's so many people I feel like I left off. And <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, you just pick any you know melodic death metal drummer, and they're better than you know ninety percent of the drummers out there, or even anybody who does uh, Norwegian death metal, you know, because or black metal, because those guys are in crazy fast, impeccable timing. Somebody's got you know like the the drummer for um, Ginger. I mean, it's crazy. In- just amazing but but i'd I'd even like to include people like i i really thought about it you know i these are my favorites because these are some of my favorite bands that these guys played with just realistically it's not just about the speed and and the ability like that they have but like there are other guys out there that are so phenomenal and like i would even have to say like tommy lee tommy lee he plays much simpler rhythms but they're so perfect with the music. 
Like just just th- that he doesn't overdo it. He d- he he does exactly what should be done with that music. And so there's so many drummers that I want to include and and recognize but i i, I kind of had to throw him out there so that people know like i'm not just about these just super fast drummers i can respect a lot of drummers yeah absolutely i mean you you mentioned simple drummers who is the simplest drummer that everybody says is is he's the, their influence phil rudd true phil rudd i mean he doesn't even do fills no no pun intended <laughs> you know I mean, with it, I mean everybody. You know, Charlie Benante, Lars Ulrich, um, all these you know big time drummers point to Phil and say he he's one of my major influences because he's just solid. But you know, are there better drummers than Phil? Oh well, yeah, there are. All right, so my big four drummers, and I I literally just changed my list right now because. I took someone who is extremely skilled and put someone else in there who's also extremely skilled but doesn't play. The band, to me, I consider him a metal drummer, but the band at the current moment is playing more hard rock than than, than metal. But let's go on with my list real quick. Number four is your number one, Gene Hoglin. Uh, the stuff that he's doing with Testament right now is amazing. And I remember him telling, uh, I was reading an interview and he told um, Chuck Billy, he says, listen, guys, and Chuck, he's talking to Chuck and to, to uh, what's the guitar player's name? Peterson. He's, talk, he's talking to the guys. He said, listen, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do on drums, but just remember that if I don't play, if, you know, if, I, if, if someone else is playing my drums, they're not going to be able to play my parts. That just tells you what kind of drummer he is to think that the other drummer can't play his parts. So that that's there's a there's an arrogance there and there's also a skill there. But he's he's also you know? very realistic and and just if you've ever listened to him talk, he's really not an arrogant person. He just recognizes. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just adding to what you're saying. Right. Um, he's really not an arrogant person. He is just very aware of how skilled he is. Exactly, and, and and it's hard. Yeah. It comes across, you know, like if someone reads it on paper, they're going to think it's arrogant. And I and I I've I've heard Gene speak before, and he's not like that at all. No, he's a really chill dude, honestly. Exactly, but there's just you know there's an an, an a part of it that you admit, look, this guy can't do what I can do. Mm-hmm. It's just that's just plain fact. And you know, you never know. I mean, there's other skilled drummers who can do what Gene does, but he's he's so he's such a badass. That's what he told Chuck and 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 I can't remember Peterson's name. His first name is, <laughs> um, but he told him. He said, "Look, I can't. Uh, whoever's going to come behind me is not going to be able to do it." But you know what? Luckily, no one's been behind him the last couple albums. So he's been there now for three albums. So that's great. He found a home finally. <laughs> yeah, as a guy who's been a drifter for so long, but yeah, like he's he's with Death Clock full time too, so he ha- right. he has a few places where he stayed and he's super comfortable and happy with, and that's awesome. Yep. All right. Um, you know what? I'm 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 cha- I'm changing on the fly again. I'm going back to my original big four. So my number three drummer is Chris Adler, former drummer of Lamb of God. He played with Me- Megadeth for one album. Um. His drumming on Lamb of God has been incredible. Um, 
he even said that when he went to Megadeth, it was more technical because what he played in Lamb of God, he said it was like a consistent drum solo. When he played on Megadeth, he had to actually come up with a rhythm and stick to it. And so that, that tells you that there's a change of skill there. And that's, you know, the stuff that he did with Lamb of God is outstanding. But I thought the stuff that he did with Megadeth was just superior because it was so technical. I love what he did with Lamb of God. I love what he did with the Megadeth album, Dystopia, is that his name of the album. So whatever he comes up with next, um, I'm, I look forward to because I know that he's got something in the works. Um, I was going to put Shannon Larkin from Godsmack in that spot uh, because Shannon is also an amazing drummer, but we need to skip past him. Number two for me is Scott Travis, which is your number three. Um, Scott Travis, I'll put it this way. Scott Travis's drum beats from Painkiller to Into the Pit um, to some of the stuff that's currently on, on the New Jewish Priest record have been stuck in my head since the times I've heard them. So Painkiller, the drum beat that intros a song is stuck in my head. I'm constantly with my fingers playing that rhythm. The 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 rhythm intro to uh, or the drum intro to Into the Pit from Fight. It is stuck in my head permanently. This uh, Vicious from Fight is stuck in my head. These are his drum beats and I am constantly playing them with my fingers. I'm constantly playing them in my head. I'm constantly playing them my hands on my legs. It is something that I cannot get out of my head and it's Scott Travis stuck in my head. And I'll tell you this, you said you haven't seen him, right? When I went to see Judas Priest on this Firepower tour, I watched Scott intently. And one song, he would play right-handed. Another song, he alternated. He would play left-handed. And then there was one song, I think it was Living After Midnight at the end. He played it with both hands. He was he was going back and forth in between verses. He would switch sides. I'm like, this dude's nuts. I mean, he's absolutely insane. That's how good he is to be ch- literally changing hands from song to song, you know, or the rhythms, the, the, the way you're playing. It's just fucking crazy to think about. Yeah, I'm t- this song I'm going to play left-handed. This song I'm going to play right-handed. Yeah, okay, whatever. So that's he's amazing. But my number one drummer, um, he's been this way for a while. I, I saw a DVD that he put out with one of the albums from his band, and that's Jason Bittner who played with Shadows Fall, and he's currently with Overkill. Absolutely amazing drummer. When I saw him do on the DVD where he was playing something at full speed, which was just lightning fast, and then he's like, look, I'm going to show you in slow, you know, I'm going to slow it down for you. And he slowed it down to a pace that would be the average beats per minute for a regular song, and that was him showing you slow. I was I was blown away. And I know he's been considered one of the best drummers in the world for quite a while. So that that's pretty, pretty uh, impressive. He's And he's got a Twitch channel and he does a bunch of drumming on there. So it's that's my number one best metal drummer. Well, that's a great list, man. I uh, I agree. I mean, when when we saw Overkill, I guess it was last year, uh, just before the pandemic started, um, I was really impressed with his work. So, great choice. Cool. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. 
Remember, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to check us out on social media and leave us a comment. Make sure to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.